know and identify the predators waving flags made of dollar bills. They will say anything. It's going to restart this whole area. All of them said, please, please get it over here. Promise please. anything. 1,500 jobs in the neighborhood, as well as 12 businesses under one roof. Do everything to turn the planet into a casino. This week on Race Capital, we are talking about the casino. We speak with community advocate and musician Alan Charles Chipman and local artist Sean. After we speak with our guests, all three hosts will provide some deeper analysis on the upcoming casino referendum in Richmond. You are listening to Race Capital on WRIR LP 97.3 FM. Stay tuned. Charles, welcome back to the show. What's up? Good to be with y'all. Hey, today we're talking about the casino proposal in Richmond. So can you start us off by giving us a quick high-level explanation of the casino proposal as the mayors put it out for us? Uh, Sure. So, I mean, well, there was a process of well, I think three or four different casinos from different places. I think um, Bally's wanted to do one. There was supposed to be, which I think was supposed to be near the Bowtie Theater. Um, the Pamunkey Tribe wanted to do one. I was so many of them, I almost forget them all. But then there was a casino one as well. You know, as the Richmond Free Press said, a lot of a lot of money was given <laughs> from casino one. And lo and behold, oh, they won. They're the last one standing. And so, you know, they're saying, you know, we'll give $25 million to the city um uh 500 million dollars of revenue over i think 10 years or something promising jobs mostly construction some part-time and then we can bring a casino here which will exploit people but and you know they they, they pitch it as the first black casino which i found out it actually isn't kind of proposing and so they're saying hey it's going to bring jobs and it's going to bring black construction jobs and it'll be black owned and you know that's kind of the pitch that they kind of have for why we should be excited about um, casinos coming to Richmond. And so now it's going to be up for a referendum. Our Richmond City Council had a vote to send it to the referendum. And so uh, it'll show up on the ballot with governors and lieutenant governor and attorney general's race and um, and all the delegates. And that's where you, people have the opportunity to vote yes or no. And I, uh, I really liked how in your latest podcast, you really got into some of the deeper like systems of oppression that are at work here beyond like what is very surface level and apparent. And so you kind of talked about the casino in the stance that the city is not prioritizing allocating money to black areas, specifically the South side. And so we can't really trust the casino revenue to support the areas in need. So what are some other examples of how Richmond's budget process has not shown equity in allocating to South side? Can you kind of get into that deeper Richmond history that you were talking about on your show? with all these systems, as well as like the historic nature of this process happening in Southside and other historically under-resourced areas? 
Yeah. And so, you know, part of the South side was um, annexed from Chesterfield. And so just the very infrastructure is very different than what an urban center would typically mean. So that's typically when you walk into certain areas and you don't have sidewalks, you don't have a lot of the pedestrian safety that would happen. You know, that's why we're seeing, you know, so many young people losing their lives to being hit by cars and not having the right type of safety for that. Uh, when we see flooding that happens in our city, that it literally is flooding on the South side. And uh, while in other areas that have that infrastructure or for traditionally have had, you know, in, in the part process, budget process, the capital improvement plan funds. And so, you know, there were promises made that, oh, we're going to get it right this time. And we, we got you in the CIP budget process. But as I shared in my podcast from the, from the session, you know, Councilman Jones sharing that they they did not do right by Southside in that current process. And so then, you know, I was saying, look, if people say they care about Southside and all of this, I say, you know, say what your treasury test, you know, uh, go ahead and, and say, hey, we got a bunch of ARP funds coming, you know, with this infrastructure plan passes, you know, that's going to be lots of stuff. And so Saying like, why don't we give a definite number and say at least the majority of the fund should go to correcting this? So, and they again, they they didn't want to put a percentage on it. They wanted to use more loose wording than specifically those areas. Um, and so again, um, when Scott's Edition is trying to you know get all these new breweries and all these things kind of happening, it's not the same type of issues that it has. Uh, but when people are using other people's money, right? Federal money, they don't want to give a specific dedication to it. And then how we've, uh, whatever the revenues that are generated have to go through the same process. And we've seen consistently, this process has not prioritized uh, the inequities in funding and infrastructure in that, then we have to really talk about. And my goal was extending people's consciousness to not just thinking about revenue, right? But revenue is only as good as the allocation that's made. And when you have people, you know, like Councilman Jones, and he's the person who supports the casino, right? Saying the process that the casino would fund revenue into does not equitably fund the South Side, then that is not automatically a solution to the South Side just because it's placed there. But what it really is, and, you know, some of the research actually shows that casinos can can lower property values up to 15% of, of what's surrounding there as well. And so when people were saying build it over there and all that other <laughs> racist stuff that you were seeing, um, the city actually decided to do just that, you know. And so um, why is it that uh, we can get a, a, a system that can actually harm black wealth, you know, just by what it would do to uh, where most black wealth is, is, is uh, uh, concentrated in, in, in home values? Um, but we cannot get the allocation and the benefit um, from the wealth that's being extracted from this community. Mm. Yeah, and I thought it tied really well, uh, or what you're saying ties really well into just the discourse on colonialism that you were getting into on here podcast, right? Because when I think of Virginia and its, its historic roots as like, uh, a colony, uh, a place in which Black folks or African folks are colonized uh, and Indigenous folks and other folks are colonized. I think about like how pe folks came here with this understanding that there's going to be gold in the streets. And I feel like every project with uh, that is proposed in Richmond is like this, this proposal that says this is going to bring gold to the streets. And it, it, every single time it's more so just predicated on, um, like you're saying, these harmful, being harmful to uh, already oppressed communities. So like, I really like appreciated you diving into that. And can you maybe even bring a little bit of that conversation into the one that we're having today? 
Yeah. So, you know, like I, I jokingly, but also seriously call one conceito one colony, because when you think about extraction versus allocation, right? Like that's, that's, that's what colonies do, right? Like colonies, colonies produce jobs, colonies uh, generated a product, colonies generated a revenue, but how much of that is actually being uh, adequately uh, given back and how much of that is actually a representative representation of actual power and choice on how those things are chosen. And, and when you when again, when I said you have an excitement about what's being generated and what's being extracted, but that energy is not matched to allocating the region and the and the and the people from which the wealth is being extracted, a lot of times that's what a colony looks like at a very basic level. You know, I mean, even when you think about this nation, right, and the Boston Tea Party and people getting mad because, oh, we getting all these taxes, but it's not, you know, like, and so it's a very, it's very, it's very, I guess, okay for white people to do that. But still when black people then begin to, to again, note what is the means of power and what does it mean to actually have reparations and actual power in it, right? As a whole, you know, especially for those who are being exploited and not those who are helping the exploited, because then this project is, well, you know, the people who work at the casino, they'll have, they'll have uh, some type of ownership into it. And so it's like colonialization has always given a window and a reward for people that help the means of exploitation. I mean, that's just fact. And so we can't just say that, oh, well, people have ownership. Ownership in what? It, it, have an opportunity. Freedom and liberation is not simply changing who is at the reins of exploitative systems. You know, it's about how do we actually deal with the core issue of why, why do we need an exploitative industry in the South Side, but the first, second, and all these other, you know, mostly white areas don't. Right. That's because of decisions that have been made at the allocation level. And so what I fear is that when you don't have a community benefits agreement, when you don't have an, even a resolution, which is still sitting in the queue, not even getting voted on, you can have wealth extraction from the south side going to continue to fund the inequitable building and prioritizing of the white parts of the city, which in any other word would be a colony. Yes. So speaking of changing hands of power, you mentioned in your podcast that Casino One is actually not the first Black casino. Can you dive into that a little bit more? Who was the first? What's the deal with that? <laughs> yeah, so this was something that I, that I just kind of stumbled upon, tweet and have things for people to think about. I think oh, I know what it was. The head of the Virginia NAACP was trying to shame someone for not supporting the casino because it's black owned and things such as this. And uh, actually, Christy Coleman, who used to be over the American Civil War Museum, kind of slid in the chat and said, um, actually, find her exact wording because the way she said it was quite wonderful. Hey, RVA, I know the Casino One folks, but have you believe it will be the first black owned casino? It is not. The late Don and Bella Barton of Detroit owned three casinos in Detroit, Vegas, and Gary, Indiana. Both died unexpectedly. So Don H. Barton was the person that owned them. And the name of them was the Majestic Star Casino was the name of it. Um, they died early, quite young. And so they, I think they, the, their daughter maybe sold it. And so, I mean, I don't think it, it generated wealth beyond their family. And so Christy Coleman was saying that she's pretty sure that... <laughs> Uh, the Bardens would not like the way that this was being framed here in Richmond. And so, again, we're not 
trying to build just black family empires and black family dynasties, right? Like, because that's, that's the whole thing about representation, right? Um, or, or, you know, almost like tokenism, right? The where it's like, because this person made it, this automatically means that you have made it, right? So it's almost like the same, same conundrum, right? Where people think revenue for, for the city means allocation for South side that somehow revenue for black dynasties, right? Black family dynasties automatically means allocation and success and freedom and liberation for all black people. And then, but, but really it's like, what, what is inspiring? As I say, like, should I celebrate a black owned payday lender? Right. It's like, what is really the liberation in us being able to exploit our own people, exploit other people instead of displaying, you know, kind of true class solidarity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing is because folks don't understand that even within the Black or African community, right, we have our own class distinctions. It's not just like when we say all skin folk and kin folk, that's also what we're talking about. It's that like the Black business class is experiencing a much different reality than Black folks who are young, Black folks who are poor, Black folks who are, you know, living at the intersections of so many other different systems of oppression. So I really think that that is important for folks to come to understand when they're thinking about class solidarity. Yeah. And, and, to, and to be reminded that even how, I guess, the quote unquote black elite would try and graduate into these white systems that they're still they still are labeled in a racial caste system. So there are windows to that. Right. And, and you know, I, I talked about this in my podcast and what Fannie Lou Hamer was kind of bringing up and saying that people need to operate in true class solidarity beyond when they're just forced to do it. When it's oh, it's oh, it's Trump. Oh, it's this type of thing. Or, or the police could kill me at any time. It's like, yeah, that happens. <laughs> 24 seven, no matter who's president. And so um, how do we actually help people to kind of go through the process that, you know, the boy kind of recognized himself kind of going through when he writes in uh, Dark Water Beyond the Veil of saying like, it's not my job to be the bourgeois black person that that studies my people like specimens and does all this stuff to impress white people, right? But really, that when I really look at my life, had a couple of people chosen to treat me like they treat every other Black person in America, there would probably be no W.E.B. Du Bois, right? So so how do we actually practice that and, and make a choice that, you know, I'm not going to use my new gain class privilege to then just exploit the same people uh, who I claim to despise are actually doing it. And that's what Dr. King kind of talks about, right, about economic exploitation, where people think that racism was only about prejudice and not about economic exploitation. And so he was talking about white people doing it. But but I, I wanted to bring up and, and remind black people as well that it's not just the prejudice because, you know, people hate Donald Trump, right? Oh, the prejudice of Donald Trump. But but Donald Trump ran casinos, Right. He was also in on this economic exploitation. So it's just like a head scratcher of we can recognize Trump and all of the isms and, and, and the things that he represented, but we will still use his same model and tools of exploitation and think it is somehow different because a black person is running it. Yes, just a hard yes to that. Thank you for illuminating that point that I think is for us in Richmond is something that we constantly have to contend with as we have a majority, do we still have a majority Black city council? Is that true anymore? No, no, no. Because it's just Lambert, Jones, Newbill, and Robertson. Those are only Black people on there, right? Damn, okay, so let me not lie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just like the city. I mean, the city's majority white now. Yeah. 
we have a lot, a good amount of black leadership within our city. So we have to take that into context when we're thinking about the landscape of power here and who is actually wielding the violence. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. And also just on the subject of white supremacy, right? Like folks always talking about white supremacy in Richmond, which I find to be a redundant term because whiteness implies supremacy. Whiteness is the basis in which all other races become, come into existence, right? So it's like, when we're talking about whiteness as a political system, that, you know, that's, that's the way we have to come to understand it here in Richmond because all black skinned folks are acting within and operating within an African politic and an African culturalism, right? Like dark folks with black skin can also contribute to a system of whiteness and or so-called white supremacy. And I think that that is often overshadowed in this city. Yeah. And I was I was just at our Africana Film Festival talking about this and saying, you know, they, they had said, if you could talk to any of our ancestors, who would you talk to right now? And I said, I would talk to Brother Kwame Torre, who wrote Black Power and the Politics of Liberation and say, like, what do you do when you're in a situation where people have when we have obtained black power, but people have forsaken the politics of liberation. Right. So now you're in a black power or the politics of liberation, right? Or the black power and the politics of exploitation, right? Uh, and then, you know, people try to hide behind their blackness as like a shield as, as, as if, uh, you know, again, as if blackness excludes us from the ability to exploit other people. And so, you know, we have, we have black elected officials, but how many people actually have a politic of liberation that's elected on the city council is a more, uh, important question than just simply, uh, I guess, representation and all those other types of things. Which, and, and I'll say this too, uh, the, the boy in the, in, the, in the souls of white folk talks about whiteness does not set the black person free without also setting itself free, right? And, and what she's pretty much saying that when you, when you follow the money, when you follow the intent of some of these things, whiteness will gladly employ people with proximity to blackness in order to continue to set up the monopoly and the power structure uh, that's going on. You know, I, sh I shared the clip of, of Angela Davis at that Black Leaders Roundtable when, when she was telling the, this black capitalist, you know, that, you know, it doesn't matter if somebody's black or white, if somebody's exploiting, that's exactly what it's going to do. And, you know, Richard Nixon has y'all thinking that, <laughs> you know, y'all can, y'all can just set up a business, become a black capitalism, but capitalism is typically, you're going to find monopolies, you're going to find exploitation and all these other types of things. And then when we look at the, the other people at the table, because this is what Christy Coleman also asked, she said, well, black owned, what does that mean? What's the percentage? Because black owned doesn't always mean 51%. We're talking 30%, we're talking 40%. People are talking about Peninsula Pacific, who is also has some type of ownership in this program, who's the same people that own Colonial Downs and Rosies and all these other types of things. And so then I begin to think what Du Bois was saying and saying, you know, are, are they employing this? And that because there's a billionaire who was backing the Pamunkey uh, tribe one as well. Uh, and they have one in Norfolk. And so and I was reading some people who were saying, why in the world are these people pitching a casino and trying to pitch it as land back? Right. When, when you, you, so, so again, you know, I'm trained as a, as a musician. I'm trained as all the other things where I see the patterns. And so where I see this pattern is going where where these white monopolies are employing and using people with proximity to blackness or indigenous culture and then using the language. Right. Of, oh, black owned black power or, or land back and to, to distract from 
it's still exploitative. It's still uh, uh, a very much a, a tool of colonization and that we just have to be wiser and we have to be more hip uh, to that, that when we see these formulas happening as the boy and Davis and all these uh, and, and, and brother Kwame Ture kind of raised up that we're able to identify what is the true nature of what is being proposed. Yes, thank you so much for synthesizing that. Shonda, we want to bring you into this conversation. Can you, and it's your first time on the show, so welcome. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got all into this casino conversation? Sure. So currently I am just an entertainer. I sing from time to time. I've sang in quite a few bands. I've been on a few stages in Richmond. Um, it's what I love to do. Um, and that's all I'm doing right now. I recently got married and I'm staying home wifing it right now. So like, I'm just kind of yelling into the void on Twitter, like everyone else. Um, <laughs> yes. which, is, which is basically how I say I got here. Like I yell into the void, um, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and I kind of got, um, I would say, look, like I've been in Richmond since 2009. I'm not from here. I'm from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, um, but I've been here a while. Um, and I kind of got locked in and tuned into everything last year at the start of like quarantine and COVID. And then George Floyd happened and then Richmond happened. And while I am not the one to be running out in the streets because my anxiety about COVID would not allow me, I was the point of contact for people that I knew who decided to be outside. So I became just someone who had information. And that's kind of where all of this started. I don't necessarily consider myself an activist. Um, I consider myself a thinker and a yeller. And where I made, I, I, I got the brains and I yell about it. Um, I know there are other people better suited to execute. I'm open to learning those things, but until then I'm gonna just keep yelling. Somebody, and obviously someone is listening. Um, <laughs> so this is where we are. <laughs> Wow, yes. Thank you for being here. Thank you guys for inviting me. This is very new. We all got our roles and we definitely need our yellers, <laughs> those shouters into the void to unite. We definitely need y'all. Um, and so Shonda, can you tell us how you're feeling about the casino and it being Black owned? Um, does, is that something that's convincing to you or do you, as we're all kind of talking about now, um, yeah. feel that there's like a deeper class solidarity that you're looking to, for? Um, so when everything first popped up, like Richmond is good for a project. Richmond is real good for a project that helps nobody in our community. And being in entertainment and hearing all of these things about the music thing and the art thing and, la -da 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 and all these things, and I'm like, that sounds real cool. But what's that going to do to the people who live in that community, number one? And number two, how does that benefit the people, in, the people locally in the industries you are saying you're bringing in? And from there, it was just like, huh, let's see what we got going. And the more I see, I feel like the less information I have. At the onset, from the very beginning, it just seemed like they, they are really trying to force the casino on us. Like they're not giving us an option. We weren't included in the conversation about which casino was gonna be brought here. Um, we weren't included in the conversation until it's time to vote for it. And we didn't have a choice about even deciding which, which one. We were just completely left out of the option until it's time to decide. It's like, here, we're bringing it to you. Just put it on the ballot. I don't like that. 
I don't like that, um, especially in the areas where they were looking to have it. Um, I think the citizens in every area where they were planning to build should have had should have been able to voice their opinion about it before we got this far. Yes, thank you for lifting the process itself and the lack of engagement with folks. Can you just share with us, what do you think people in Richmond need to be asking themselves before voting for or against the casino? Are we ready to abandon everything that we know and everything history has told us, especially in Richmond City and then just with social equity and the way minorities are treated? Are we ready to abandon all of that for just the sliver of hope, for the sliver of of hope of having a little bit of additional wealth? Like, are y'all really prepared? Like, as a city, we're okay abandoning everything we know that history has told us projects like this will happen to us just for the opportunity to maybe sort of get a little wealth. Right, maybe sorta. <laughs> on who, like, on who's back? Mm. Yeah, I'm not quite ready to abandon history yet. I'm not. And to me, this just begs the question of the land. Time and time again, all these things we keep talking about—housing, you know, these projects. When are we gonna start talking about like how we actually, as a people, have no ownership over our lives within? the jurisdiction of this land. Like, these are the questions that I really think, like Shonda and AC, what y'all have been touching on, like, this is the deep discussions that we really have to start thinking of as a people, because as it stands, you know, all we are is in a constant cycle of voting no and opposing these these projects, right? Every two, three years, we coming back with a new development project. And for what? For what? Wasting all this time, like, energizing against it for what? We got to get something jumping. I'm sorry, y'all. (laughs) it's okay no I got the opportunity to actually speak with Alfred I think it's Liggins I got an opportunity to speak with him and I actually got a chance to meet Miss his mother Miss Kathy Hughes and it was an interesting engagement they are dedicated to making sure money gets where it needs to go which is why I'm you know I'm pressing my OG who he knows that I don't name him when I'm having these conversations because he's working with them. We have very differing opinions, which is how I got the opportunity to meet them. But um, in the conversation that I had with Mr. Liggins, you know, I asked questions and I got talking points. And my, you know, I'm like, let's further this, you know, let's have more conversation because if you went out of your way to let someone know you wanted to speak to me about this project, then I deserve more than the talking points that I can read my own, that I can Google by myself. And part of the part of what I want to see as this project moves forward, because in my heart of hearts, I feel like it's coming. I wanna see some actual commitments from this organization to make sure this money is allocated where it needs to go. Like you have the power because you have the money. And since you have the power and the money in the situation, it is your obligation as a person of this community. But as a member of your community, of the Black community, I feel like they have, um, they have a bigger obligation to make sure that the city and the state properly allocate this money. And I like there can't be con- like I don't know how government works. I'll be very honest, but I want to see contracts. I want to see commitments. I want to see them in this community, working within this community before they get here. Yeah, and, and it matters when the concern started, you know, because people are to say, oh, well, where are we going to get all these jobs? Where was all this concern for black owned construction workers when we chose who was going to build the General Assembly building, who now is being sued because they've been lying? 
and misclassifying their workers so they can get out of paying people, right? So let's let's not act like a casino is the only thing that's getting built in the city of Richmond. And so I think it's it's important for us to talk about when. I think it's also important for us to talk about not just you know community benefits agreements and how do you care for people uh, surrounding the casino. How are you caring for people inside the casino? Which is one of the big things I've been talking about is saying like why don't we have some of the best practices of simply limiting how much someone can lose and how much somebody can spend within a visit to the casino. I, I saw a stat recently today that says 40 to, to, to 60% of uh, money coming into casinos comes from gambling addicts, even though they're a very, very low level, right? They So they'll say, oh, it's only a little bit of people, but they won't talk about how much they're extracting from those people. You know, some casinos have said like, look, we're going to limit how much someone can lose, how much somebody can spend. They're just saying, oh, well, well, we'll let the addicts tell us tell us not to let them in and, and we'll put them on a list. Right. And, but they want to compare themselves to, cause they'll say, Oh, liquor's bad. This is some of the talking points on this on, but liquor's bad. So we can say we can't have restaurants say, well, if you want to be compared to liquor or alcohol, take it for somebody who used to write liability for, for that and for bars, you have to impose limits on how much you can give someone. Right. So you can't just give somebody 20 drinks and they go, out down the street and, and get in an accident and, and kill themselves, you have to have limits on those. And so for, for at least three times at the beginning of the process, during the process, the last one that they had with the RCDC, it's like, why won't you guys at least impose limits on that? And then, the, and then I asked the question, and if you have, how does that affect your revenue project? Well, we haven't thought about that. We're not going to do that because, you know, you can't be profitable without exploiting those who have addictions and those who are the most vulnerable to these types of things. And so when you look beyond the characters and, oh, it must be okay, look at this person, right? And you really look at what it really is, right? It's an exploitative industry that's quite dangerous. I mean, when you look at people with gambling addictions, uh, they are 15 times more likely to commit suicide because they end up uh, getting themselves in very uh, in a lot of debt and then try to bet to get themselves out. Alcohol is freely served. I heard, heard somebody saying giving somebody a drink in a casino was like giving somebody a bunch of shots before they sign their mortgage papers, right? Like these are important decisions that are being made. And the success ratio is liter literally based on exploitation and, and rigged gaming. You know, people love to say good luck in casino, but it's not about luck. It's about algorithms, right? There are certain payout algorithms that are in some of these class two gambling machines that that literally is rigged gaming. And so, you know, I had <laughs> I went with a, a guy from the NAACP was was trying to do all his talking points. I was saying, is casino rigged gaming or is it not? And he says, oh, I don't have an answer for that. I said, well, brother, I got an answer for that. It's rigged, right? And so when we are literally doing exploitation, right, we can dress it up and add all these other things about and who is the wealth extracted from to produce these revenues, we clearly see that it operates the same way that a colony does. Yes. And I think the aspect of the gambling piece and that impact on our community, that could be its own episode, right? Um, especially as you brought up the connections between Colonial Downs, Rosie's, which has been here for long enough that I think all of us may have stories of. And, and what's the word before Downs? What's the word Colonial, before Downs? Colonial, right? <laughs> so, I mean, there's a legacy of this in Richmond. And I think that's a conversation that we should definitely continue to have about the impact on people's lives if it does come here. 
Thank y'all so much for sharing all of your perspectives on the casino. We want y'all to let our listeners know, how can they follow you and support the work that you all do in your day-to-day lives? Um, sure. You can follow me on all social media at Mr. Legacy Jones, MR Legacy Jones, which is my musician name, but I just kept it because that's what it is. And um, uh, and you can also follow me at A Difference in Thought. This is the name of my podcast on all platforms as well. And I also want to just as a as a one note as well, we talked a little bit about, oh, it, do we have a majority black council? Do we not? And also understanding the changing demographics of our city and that not to just think about what will this casino mean when we have, you know, your councilman Joneses and your black mayors and your black this and black that. But what will this casino mean as Richmond becomes more and more white and you don't even have that elected representation, right? How much more South South will become less and less a priority during this allocation? And so we're making decisions about decades, not just about years until it's constructed and things such as that, too. So be- begin to also think about that and the weight of your vote when you go and hopefully vote no. And you guys can find me on Twitter and on IG posting nonsense videos, yelling into the void and nonsense is my brand. Uh, <laughs> and you can find me at the Bayquarian at the Bay B A E Quarian because I mean Aquarius is we're wonderful like that. So yeah, come follow me. Show up to a show. Say hi. <laughs> Hope to see someone out there soon. Yes. Thanks, y'all. For, for sure. Me. Glad I could be a part <laughs> of the award-winning race capital. <laughs> <laughs> Listening to Race Capital with Chelsea Higgs Wise, Kalia Harris, and Naomi Isaac. First off, thanks so much to our guests this week for coming on and speaking with us. Now, y'all, let's dive into some deeper analysis on this casino. To get us started, for those who may not have heard, what is one casino? Can we break it down? Spoke tea. You know, someone close to me hit me up the other day and said, Wait, Chelsea, I know this is obvious, but the casino one is that like radio one like the media people too am i just am i slow to this i mean of course it is chelsea i mean of course this is one big monopoly is that really what is going on here and i had to reply to that person yes yes that's exactly what's happening the the one in casino one is absolutely the same one in radio one this money is not new money to richmond and yes it has always been black owned black run and when you think about it that way this very black influential family has always had the influence to do something right in richmond and as we see they have never made that choice prior to now and then while all of a sudden are they feeling generous with this casino so that's one piece of information to understand 
Now, a little bit about Radio One that's important to know. And as a media platform, this is something that is really important to us is to understand the politics and policy that govern and regulate us. The 1996 Telecommunications Act, which was under Bill Clinton, y'all, Democrat, created this act that actually consolidated radio, TV, and FCC and allowed for mass consolidation of local voices to actually 10 major companies and Clear Channel Radio One being one of those and interest. So these 10 parent companies dominate the radio spectrum, okay, from radio listenership to radio revenues. And deregulation has allowed a few large radio companies to really swallow a lot of the small ones. So what that means is the local radio stations, the independent voices that used to be allowed to play their own music, put their own people on, talk about their own issues were now bought out. And there are just these main companies at the top that pick out the voices that they want to run, shuffle them around the region. That's why you see DJs go into one radio station to the next. And it's kind of the same ones because it's all the same people at the top. And these two parent companies in particular, Clear Channel and Viacom controlled over 42, 45% of the industry. Now, something really interesting that happened just recently last year in 2020 is that Radio One completed its $1.3 billion acquisition of 12 radio stations from Clear Channel. So now when we just talked about Clear Channel being one of the two big parent industries, here comes Radio One buying it all. Now with this acquisition, Radio One, already the largest radio broadcaster primarily targeting African-Americans and Black folks, become the now eighth largest radio company in the U.S., achieves a national presence. So Radio One is already a monopoly, y'all, particularly of Black influence Black culture, right? So just because they're Black doesn't mean they can't have this monopoly. So we, I just wanted to run in a little bit of history about Casino One is absolutely that one colony, as we just heard from Alan Charles, um, that's connected already to our media. And now they're asking for a hundred acres of land in Richmond. They don't want to just run your narrative. They want to now run your land and they want to run a whole new plantation right here in the so-called Richmond. So I think it's really interesting to see the cultural relevance that's happening on the narrative. And if these same influencers are actually thinking of promoting material benefits for Black folks. And of course, that's just not happening. That's Radio One. Well, yeah, it's definitely interesting to like uncover that connection that you made, Chelsea, understanding that both mainstream media and mainstream gaming are predicated on exploitation of marginalized folks, colonized folks. So like, especially knowing that the folks who control the narrative of what it is to be a Black person or an African person in this country, those folks that are determining how we're viewed um, and really largely contributing to our policing, even with a Black face and Black skin doing it, you know, that's really disturbing, honestly, to find out that they're behind all of this project. Just thinking of the sheer money that has gone into media ads and all of that, I know people have been saying that there's just an onslaught of propaganda, and many of our listeners even shared some of that propaganda with us. So thank you to everyone who did that. And going back to the close friend of mine that texted me, they started their question with, Chelsea, I just saw the quadruple billboard for this casino. So the money that you mentioned, Kalia, that's going in, they don't want to lose that money, but they also have that money to lose, right, y'all? I mean, this is this is major wealth that's happening. The only creation of wealth that's happening is, is actually just their own. 
Yeah, and we were talking about um, a little bit about legacy earlier, and I think that it's important to call that in here, right? Folks aren't going to understand like why you it's really so upsetting and why it's so devastating if you know they don't understand what's come before. So can you um, tell our audience, Chelsea, just about the history of other big development in Richmond such as this? It's important to remember that Richmond has always been Black majority since we got here. Y'all, right? So now us moving into where there is a white majority and we are moving into the minority population should really scare everyone. And it's happening so quickly. And it's important to also realize these developments have always been allowed by policy and and a major change of policy that's happening on a national level and being mimicked across the country. So we saw that in projects like the highway, right? That is the Bartholomew project that they just copied everywhere. We saw the old casino that they're still not allowing to use, but that in itself, you know, we know gentrified Navy Hill. We also know about the annexation of Southside and Richmond, right? And that was in a complete reaction because they were displacing people in the housing. They were disenfranchising them from the vote. And so their answer was to actually just buy up more Chesterfield to dilute the vote. The we also had the convention center. Y'all, I don't know if, if uh, folks are old enough to remember the convention center was supposed to bring lots of revenue. The hotel that was right there downtown, the Marriott, it was supposed to bring tourism with the Coliseum, right, y'all? And none of that actually happened. We also had the Shaco Bottom Stadium that was a promise that was supposed to bring in more revenue, even though we have a stadium already and the city doesn't really like baseball right? We're not selling out the diamond, but that was also supposed to bring more tourism to the bottom, revitalize the bottom. Now think about why they would want to do that, right? Back in the day. And and it's always these areas that we are seeing Black folks consume and and occupy because that's where we live and survive. That's our home. We also had the Stone Brewery that was supposed to bring jobs and, and, and more things for us that actually just costing us more money, just like that whole Washington Stadium costing us money. The Navy Hill proposal, another one that was supposed to bring in all these revenues. I loved that we looked in history and saw an old commercial for the convention center and the promises were exactly the same of what were going to happen, y'all. And we voted that down too. And so now we've got the same talking points, the same revenue projections, the same promises for our schools now coming for the casino. So these are the remix promises of how they can continue to exploit us that we should recognize and also know they're going to keep coming. Y'all, like the, they are going to keep coming. We just need to keep resisting. Yes. And I mean, I feel like we just blinked our eyes and we went from Navy Hill to Casino One. So it's incredible how quickly the projects come back. And something I heard Chelsea over and over was jobs, jobs, jobs. And we're here in Richmond, you know, the fallen capital of the Confederacy, where labor is such a conversation to have, right? And The way that they continue to try to get our people in is by promising them these jobs. But when we really think about what jobs they're even promising, right, there's holes in that story. So, yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit about how the casino mirrors the plantation. Well, you know, I think that we have to understand that these promises of jobs are going to be hourly jobs. They're not going to be many of them and any of the incentives that they're promising, they don't have to do, nor do they have to sustain after a long period of time, you all, but they will always need labor, right? So we just have to expect them to use the tools that they know and habits that they know of exploitation. And again, the 100 acres of land 
they want to occupy? Who is going to maintain that land? How is it going to run? It is really important to, to understand that in our labor market right now, since we got here, we never, we, we came here to work. That's why we are here, right, on this land. And that does not change when you put us in a casino. And I think it's, I'd also love to hear more about you all's thoughts about this, but hearing from Alan Charles and his meeting that he attended at city council and learning that they are building a new police precinct within the casino to oversee the laborers, right? And, and to keep order. That definitely reminds me of our continuation of the evolution of the plantation. And it's interesting the way that they're doing these promises with the jobs. I heard that they are t- saying that the employees will share in the wealth building and by them having you know $3,000 bonuses at the end of the year. And I was like, wait, because we're giving holiday bonuses now, that's wealth sharing. No, that's doing things that used to just be expected um, when you had a job. And that's absolutely not even a tiny percentage of any kind of wealth sharing. But it's these promises because we are so used to nothing that they are now able to dangle over us and we get excited. Yeah, the holiday bonus thing blows me. Like even enslaved folk got bread on Christmas. That's not emancipation and it's actually insulting that they would ever dare try to act like that's something radical at all and so for me you know when I think about just for as long as I've lived in Richmond in North Chesterfield so that's since I've been eight there has been a working project or a collapsing project and that's when I start to think about how in Richmond you know I think folks aren't aware that we are in an age of domestic neocolonialism. And that is what at least the Black Liberation Army describes as direct white power being replaced with indirect white power or white power in the name of Black people or what we call Black faces in high places. And so like it also just in in thinking of colonialism, it brings into question even the concept of Black success, because especially in Richmond, that becomes rooted in in a in a business manner, right? In a very in a way that's always serving of the state's interests. And so I'm just thinking about how that success, our success, becomes binary under this system. Um, and it says that there's like success, and then there is a success for Black and otherwise colonized people. And our success is then becoming measured um, by how closely we can come to the white man's success, in spite of them knowing that we got limited opportunities. And then we know, of course, that the white man's success is going to be that which empowers the state. Or in other words, the white man's success means becoming a full citizen, what we were just talking about, or becoming fully indoctrinated with uh, Eurocentric political educational values. So when we think about Black success in Richmond, it's not only presented as like an aspiration for people of African descent to be proximal to white folks or act in Eurocentric manner, but it also becomes a metric in which the state and the city government, and then ultimately the police, measure our civility. And I think that's like the greater thing that's at risk is that the youth in the city, including myself, folks are growing up with this as the idea of what Black success looks like. But why can't Black success look like housing initiatives? Why can't Black success look like food initiatives? You know, why is it that Black success in taking care of our people only comes secondary to some Black person in a high office, in a high place with a big fat wallet making money first? And that's really frustrating and angering to me as somebody who's young African in the city. I don't know what you're going to say after that, but you probably just need to press rewind and listen to that again, because what you're saying is 
is real truth know me? That's what makes this platform so special is understanding what else is around and what we are able to create, right? And this is a testimony that what we can create and what type of media platforms we need right now, right? And and because of how much resources are going to a very different narrative that has a melanin face. And I don't think it matters how many influencers that are not from here tune in and give their two cents or the big names that are coming in to cash in on our backs. It's really on us to know like what we deserve. And like you're saying, Nomi, I don't necessarily think that we should have to give up something to get what we already deserve or risk the future of our city on yet another project like Navy Hill, what it was like 30 years of our school's future. This one, who knows uh, all the terrible things that we're promising away. But I don't want to have to give up or risk something to get housing for all, to get rid of the police, to have fully funded schools. And it's a shame that we have to continue to fight these projects or speak out against them to even get to that baseline of getting what we deserve. So it's a real shame. And Kalia, because you brought up schools just then, I also wanted to... um direct people's ear to the promise of money for schools through these revenues is that there is absolutely guaranteed money for public safety and the police in these revenues. But the wording says that the schools can get revenue. So it's not actually even guaranteed. If you know anything about that language policy, can and may means probably won't make the budget cut. And we know with the casino is going to come more police. Like they're promising it. You can look to cities with casinos. We can look at Rosie's on Midlow to know that they're going to be increasing the policing in our city. And that's more money into their budget and out of our community's pockets at the bottom line. That's where my concern lies. And it goes to a a larger context that we were really fighting against last year was to even have a accurate narrative coming out of Richmond and what that'll mean if Casino One or Radio One, same person, same people get access to that type of resources and what that means for the narrative in Richmond coming out. So it's something to think about with that. It's also something to think about as our city is being gentrified and the pockets of Richmond that are still able to be occupied and lived in by black people, they will become the worker zones, right? That will be the worker where the workers live, the laborers live, and they will be a super policed areas. We already know and can point to those areas on a map right now. And so we have to understand what is happening to our city with these big projects. And I will still never get over a hundred acres of land and 55 of those acres just being green in park space for tourists to run around. I really can't get over it. Mm. It's just, I think a lot of Black business owners, this is the time for us to be bold and call folks out because what we're not going to do is pretend like it's revolutionary to build yourself an empire, you know, and that's what these folks are doing. They are building an empire for themselves. They're building an empire for their future descendants in the hopes that they can do the exact same things with your descendants. And so like, you know, at a certain point, we have to start um, understanding that folks are not like when it comes to class, we have to start understanding that within Black Richmond, there are class divides and there are folks who are uh, invested in the interest of the state and the city government and the police. And there are folks that are struggling and they poor and they out in the streets and they're organizing for true freedom. And, you know, these are the initiatives I think folks really have to start to support because 
the money, we can see that the money obviously is not going to be provided unless on the, it's on the basis of concessions that were stolen to begin with, you know, so. All right, y'all. So what's next? You know, the referendum's on the ballot in November, but in reality, these projects are going to keep going. I mean, Chelsea, you were running them down, right? A lifetime of projects. So what do we see as solutions to this long-term problem that doesn't have us reliant on shiny, large projects? Same thing we talk about doing every episode is building our own, organizing, and resisting when we need to, particularly to protect our people and, and understand that their wealth isn't running out anytime soon. So these project proposals are not going to run out and that we do have the tools to fight them. We have beaten them before. And, and to really start to, what I'm hoping to see with us is to start to build more capacity to resist those, but enable more building of our own. Yeah, I think it's just going to have to be... Um... Folks being honest that, you know, it's not going to be achieved straightly and directly through means of the ballot, right? We have to support, you know, it's not just as easy as you just going down and voting for referendums. It's supporting and putting money into the people that have created systems, you know, folks who are doing the work and don't have the funding for folks who have access to wealth, for folks who can apply to loans, for folks who can get grants and manipulate that system. It's up to us to really start building up and supporting financially autonomous and independent people-run projects, whether that looks like entertainment, whether that looks like media, whether that looks like schooling. I think that we all are going to have to be invested in ourselves because Richmond is not. Richmond is not invested in us. And that's a part of us decolonizing and all but also resisting our own genocide because you know genocide is a constant and it's happening now with, with Chelsea what you were just talking about you know the displacement the cultural loss the loss of political power the loss of economic power that's genocide y'all and we got to resist it <laughs> and, and that's going to look like you know more than way more than voting you, you know we got to hit the streets we got to hit the books we got to be creative fundraise and most importantly we gotta uh, uh not be dependent on these uh black business owners because you know they are they are not going to be the saviors in this story unfortunately they don't care about us they just want their spot in the casino let's Come be on. let's be clear yes moral y'all. of the story yes the money that is made in the casino will stay in the casino point blank period the house always wins we got a black casino black mayor Black radio stations. But the question we leave for the Black listeners of Race Capital is, what does it mean for us to have Black liberation in Richmond? Well, we'll see y'all next week on Race Capital. And you can subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast streaming platform today. Peace, y'all.